what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host. For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein. Welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. This is the uh, this present program is the second in a two-part series on the series on the archaeology of ancient Egypt and related areas. Uh, last week we had a very interesting broadcast about the discovery of of ships along the. Uh, Red Sea Coast are related to the shipbuilding industry in Egypt and how uh, contemporary archaeological methods and high technology strategies are enabling us to reconstruct ships and to, to get deeper into the understanding of how ancient maritime Egypt functioned to a large degree. And I think today we have a very special guest, Dr. Donald Redford, who has been working in Egypt for nearly half a century and has done some very traditional and more revolutionary types of work in Egyptology. Uh, it's one of the most dynamic fields in archaeology and one of the fields that's put archaeology on the map generally. Uh, Dr. Redford is a professor of Egyptology in the Departments of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies and History at Penn State University. He is an internationally renowned scholar of ancient Egypt and biblical studies and a noted expert on the 18th dynasty of the Amarna period. Professor Redford is the author of several books, including Akhenaten, The Heritage King, and Israel, Canaan, and Egypt in Ancient Times. And as well, he has published extensive and highly sophisticated academic papers. He is frequently featured in series and documentations on the A&E Network, the Histories Channel, and the BBC. Professor Redford has been the director of the Akhenaten Temple Project since 1972, and it is my pleasure to welcome you, sir, to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Dr. Redford, uh, I would like to begin by asking you, since you have such a broad window on Egyptology, how Egyptological studies have changed over the past 50 years since you started working there. If you could give us a little bit of a perspective on how uh, 
Egyptological studies have evolved, I think uh, the audience would be very interested in that. Yes. Um, well, I came to the country the first time in 1962, and um, uh, at that time, well, for maybe over a century, ever since uh, the time of Napoleon, um, Egypt had uh, appealed to the art collector uh, primarily um, as a place where objets d'art could be acquired rather easily. Um, that unfortunately gave early archaeology um, a bad name as a simple treasure hunting. Um, and even after the Second World War, um, uh, and I was in, in that penumbra at that time as a young student, uh, the notion that we were uh, going abroad uh, into the, the wilds of Egypt simply to find gold and silver was still very much to the fore. And um, uh, now I, I don't mean to, uh, to cast aspersions on my colleagues of that day because uh, scientific archaeology had already taken off long before that. But still, that, that unfortunate stigma uh, seemed to attach itself to people working in Egypt. Uh, to the point where sometimes even granting uh, fund uh, ag funding agencies um, uh, would uh, look uh, not uh, with, with disfavor on an Egyptologist applying for a, a grant or something like this. Now all of that has changed. Um, it's it's changed uh, simply because, um, um, for for example, anthropologists have become much more um, active in Egypt uh, today than they were when I first started out, uh, and they have brought with them a whole grab bag of new techniques. Um, they're forever inventing new ones, and um, uh, that's all to the good, uh, very very definitely. Um, the uh, when, when I first went um, to Egypt, uh, it was uh, the, the mechanisms in place for getting a contract with the government and doing archaeology uh, were not really um, settled. It was very difficult to find out what one had to do to get a contract in order to uh, carry on legitimate work in the country. Uh, but today, uh, largely thanks to Zahi Hawass, um, the whole system has been regularized and uh, it really is operating now uh, quite well. I'm I'm personally rather happy with the way things have turned out. Um, now that, that there is, of course, the the prospect, uh, and we we well, we don't know uh, whether this really is a prospect, of course, um, uh, as to what is going to happen um, uh, as uh, events take their course uh, politically speaking in the country. Um, there is always the danger in Egypt of uh, outright looting. And that, of course, over the past two years has uh, gone on um, uh, to some extent, but we're, we're still not sure um, to what extent that, that it, it really has um, affected things on the ground. Uh, but it's something that we, um, uh, of course, two years ago, we, we never realized that this was, was going to happen. And, um, and now it has, and, and we may have to uh, pull up our socks, in a sense, uh, and... Uh, and, and uh, develop new strategies for protection of the antiquities. I think you had mentioned the uh, significant uh, role that Zahi Hawass played in just generally fashioning the nature of Egyptology and I assume coordinating extensive expeditions by foreign, foreign in research interests. Uh, he is no longer with the operation with, uh, with antiquities, is he, or has he been reinstated? No, or? no he so has how not. He, so he uh, has he, not. He has not. Yes, 
Uh, he's um, uh, still in the country, um, but his exact position is unclear um, with respect to the law. Uh, but still, the, um, uh, the system he put in place uh, has survived. It's still operating. And um, I, I'm, I'm quite, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy about that. So um, we'll just have to see. Are you comfortable with the potential for uh, ongoing research work by foreign interests, or do you think that that's in flux and maybe in danger somewhere? Well, I, um, I've been over there uh, three times since the, the revolution, and uh, expecting each time to uh, to come back with with uh, sad news. But in fact, it, that has not happened. My, um, my own work over there and that of my close colleagues um, uh, have not been affected as yet uh, in any way. Um, we still sign the same contracts and we get the same inspectors and uh, um, they're as congenial as they ever were. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm uh, so far so good. Well, that's very gratifying to hear. I think uh, probably everybody understands that because Egypt is structured so heavily on the tourist industry and archaeology is almost indispensable to the development of that industry, that it's probably there to stay, but right. nevertheless, you can never figure out exactly where this is going. That, that's right. There is one cloud on the horizon, if I might uh, refer to it, and that is the presence of the, this Salafi movement. Right. Um, it's not, well, they did get a sizable chunk of the vote, that's true, but the extent to which they can make use of this new power, I don't know. Um, but uh, they uh, represent a point of view which is wholly anathema to me, and uh, I don't know what I would do if I were <laughs> confronted by uh, a group of Salafis uh, wanting to impose their own ideas on my dig. But that's for the future. That has not happened yet. And thankfully, there is a very strong, though um, uh, marginally uh, in a minority, uh, a strong secular um, uh, group in Egypt now that uh, is not going to tolerate this sort of thing. The question, as I suppose, is how much weight they're going to carry. Um, obviously, Morsi, Morsi has a, uh, a significant majority. It's not huge, but uh, he certainly seems to be, I guess, for lack of a better word, playing both sides against the middle to see where this is sorting out. But uh, your feeling is that, the, that we have cause for optimism to some degree. Guarded optimism, would you I, say? I, I would say so, yes. Um, uh, well, I'm going over again in uh, in three months, so I'll, I'll have uh, better information then. But no, I, I haven't uh, heard anything through the grapevine. My colleagues over there have um, um, are still welcoming, so I, I don't see any problem for the immediate future. And do you have ongoing projects there right now with that are staffed? Yes, I do. Um, I'm working uh, at a major site in the Delta called Mendes. Uh, which once was the capital of Egypt, and we've been there for about 20 years. Um, it's a marvelous site. Um, uh, it was The site was occupied all the way from the 5th millennium B.C. right on down to about a, um, uh, the year 1000, uh, when it, the town was pretty much wiped out in a tax revolt. <laughs> but um, up, uh, throughout that entire 6,000-year uh, span, um, the site was occupied. It represents um, or give me a lot of evidence for one of my, my favorite topics, and that is the coming of urbanism uh, to the ancient world and what urbanism really constituted uh, at the beginning. Um, and uh, there is also a burial ground for sacred rams and uh, a very large temple, badly ruined, unfortunately, for the ram god. 
um, oh, we have evidence of, of massacres around 2200 B.C., and the Persian invasion of 342 B.C. Uh, left the city in a, uh, a shambles. Um, so historically, we've got all sorts of information coming out of Mendes. It really is a dream. Every, every summer I go back, uh, usually May and June, to, uh, to excavate. And this is, uh, this is uh, probably one of the principal locations in Lower Egypt, correct? Yes, it is. Um, there were in antiquity um, other cities um, there, of course, which were equally large, but most of those today lie under modern towns, whereas Mendes is completely free of uh, present-day occupation. Uh, and it stretches for, well, two and a half miles uh, in a north-south direction and is roughly, um, on average, one kilometer wide. So it's a pretty big uh, ancient city. And you're saying it doesn't have a huge, uh, there, there's not uh, the threat of encroaching development uh, associated with the site that would compromise its integrity? Um, well, only slightly. And the, the modern towns um, are far removed from the site. You can see them, but they're not going to encroach. Right. Encroachment might come from the farmers. Uh, who sometimes like to slice off a bit of the tell um, uh, in order to get fertilizer and to extend their fields. Um, uh, this is really a no-no, and our inspector of antiquities um, uh, stands up to them, and, and uh, no problems have emerged, oh, for the last 15 years. Uh, so I don't anticipate any in the future either. Uh, and we will take a brief break here, and we will come back with Dr. Donald Redford, who has an extensive window on Egyptology, having worked there for half a century. And we'll be back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Termino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. Our program will help you to heal yourself, support those around you, and enhance your work and your relationships. Healing can be physical, emotional, or spiritual, and it can be personal or collective for the healing of our planet. Dr. Allison and her guests will offer methods of healing that will go beyond your life and reach the lives of others. Tune in to the Empowered Healer Show. Airing live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back with uh, Dr. Donald Redford, who is a uh, well-known professor of Egyptology at Penn State University. Uh, Dr. Redford, what I did want to ask you at this point is you had mentioned in your overview of how Egyptological studies are evolving that a major turning point, if you will, was the uh, sort of the strong influence of anthropology into traditional Egyptological studies, which I assume at that point had been uh, largely dictated by sort of some archaeological findings supplemented by what was clearly at the time known about hieroglyphics and, and the historic record. I was wondering if you could tell us how anthropology has affected the general course of study in the ancient Egypt. Right. Um, yes, well, when I went there as a student in, in 62, the, um, the typical Egyptologist was someone who had taken several courses, but not necessarily many, in the language and the script. Uh, and also somebody who um, could appreciate uh, pretty basically what a pot was and uh, what the use of certain artifacts were. And maybe uh, um, he had had a brush with um, ancient Egyptian burial practices. But um, that was about it. And uh, since that time, the arrival in Egypt of uh, such people as Rob Wenke of uh, Washington, uh, Doug Brewer of Illinois, and uh, to name only two, uh, but there certainly are many, many others, um, has introduced into the the field uh, techniques developed elsewhere, often in the Southwest, um, but also in, in the Middle East, uh, which were unknown in Egypt, um, techniques of excavation, um, stratigraphy, um, uh, seriation of, of artifacts, and, and this sort of thing. Um, and now, of course, the uh, modern techniques of uh, uh, subjecting uh, human remains to uh, DNA studies and this sort of thing, this is just, um, I, I wouldn't have imagined that 50 years ago that anything uh, like this uh, was in the offing. So uh, they've really uh, sharpened us up now and um, forced us uh, to learn new techniques, or at least to have them introduced onto our digs. Right. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I think one of the major advances, I think, in the anthropological archaeology movement, if you will, of the 60s, was more of a focus into how societies evolved rather than how monuments were built and how the pharaonic dynasties proceeded from one to the other. And your work clearly is starting to move or has long for a long period of time, moved in the direction of the dynamics of social complexity and organization and trade and commerce, et cetera, et cetera. And yes. do you see this as, as a flow that will be continuing? Oh, yes. As far as I'm concerned, it will be. Um, but um, uh, other colleagues as well uh, uh, are on the same wavelength here. Uh, um, I won't go into any of the names, but uh, it would be difficult to find a dig in Egypt today that did not have all these anthropological uh, techniques, um, um, you know, front and center, um, including the, and we haven't mentioned them, of course, but uh, uh, the French and Germans, 
um, are very much um, uh, in, in, in the, the Egyptian setting, and um, they're doing excellent work, absolutely first rate. Um, but but uh, my, my envy for the Germans <laughs> um, uh, comes partly from the fact that they have so much money, um, and uh, they don't have to go out and, and get grants and this sort of thing. Uh, the government uh, is is quite uh, uh, you know favor, favorably disposed towards giving them money. I think you put your finger on something that's very very intriguing. First of all, yeah. I, I mean, in 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 my limited familiarity with what goes on, and certainly in the later periods in Egypt, the French and the Germans have been involved forever um, right. in, in that work. I I think what's actually intriguing, though, and the Germans certainly, you know, they get funding. It seems like an unlimited supply of funding because That's a lot right. of it is federally centered and yeah. there are formal allocations, governmental allocations for doing archaeology. I guess one of the questions I have for you mm-hmm. is way back, and, and this goes back to when I was in grad school, which is in the late 70s, mm-hmm. um, that you had, to, you had to be fluent and convert, not fluent, but certainly conversant and able to read the German and French liter- literature to even put your foot down exactly. in Egyptological studies. Yeah. My, my question now is with English assuming a much more prominent role in uh, international research and in scientific circles, do you see the same thing going on? Where at this point, even folks who are trained in in Germany and in France now have to be sort of uh, conversant and and familiar with English in order to proceed. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> um, really? Okay. Oh, no, not not at all. But but uh, that having been said. Um, uh, it would be hard for me to put, uh, to think of one single German colleague or student uh, who could not converse with me in English, right. and uh, who does so now. The French, to a slightly lesser degree, um, uh, and I try to speak French to them whenever, whenever I can. We we get along, but certainly the Germans know they uh, they're marvelous. They um, uh, the the journals coming out in Germany are are, are uh, cutting edge research, and, and one has to keep up with them. They're all, of course, in German, so I don't see a, a reversal of that uh, uh, of that in in uh, in the near future at all. Interesting. Uh, do you say, but uh, American researchers presumably are conversant and are capable of reading the journals, the academic articles, and so yes. there is a good feedback between them. And I guess the other question I was going to ask you is, and, and this is something that I think we're looking at worldwide in terms of archaeology and in, in, in the recent movement of uh, heritage management and, and the need for um, sort of elevating the profile, if you will, of archaeological sites to the point where where they become sort of educational uh, educational opportunities as well as tourist attracting sites. Do you see a broader expansion into reaching out to the public uh, in terms of what archaeology is doing and and sort of if not necessarily a constriction in the academic development, but just more of a focus on, on public archaeology? as it were, in, in Egypt and elsewhere? Well, yes, I, I wish I could um, bring what I'm doing um, more, more to the attention of, of um, laymen. Um, uh, I, it, it's difficult for me to, to, to do it. I'm holding down a full-time job here and uh, trying to undertake uh, two excavations in Egypt and 
um, I, I try to run a field school. That's one thing that we have uh, um, set in place at Mendy's um, oh, for the last uh, through 13, 14 years. Um, now, that poses another problem which you didn't bring up, and that is um, the Egyptians themselves uh, are not favorably disposed toward field schools. They do not like them. Is there um, a reason for that? Well, they think that the students are rank amateurs and uh, can do no good to the site. This, of course, is utter rubbish. Um, and some <laughs> of the better trained uh, uh, Egyptians will know that. But um, it, it's always a concern for me uh, going out there with a, a whole body of students. And I always go with students. That They make up the majority of my team. Um, of course, I have a, a, a geologist and paleobotanist and all the other uh, disciplines represented. But um, the, the students are, um, if they um, come to the attention of the local inspectors uh, as students and uh, getting some credits for this participation, the Egyptians don't like it at all. And um, I've, I've been roundly criticized myself and so have some of my colleagues for having too many students on my dig. Um, so I, I try to get around that in various ways, um, and one is to uh, choose students not on the basis of uh, first come, first serve, but uh, what they can do for the dig. Um, some might have a, uh, a good hand in, 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 uh, in copying hieroglyphs, or others might uh, have a, uh, a knowledge of photography or something like that. So these become assistants in these areas, um, and I try to avoid the term school, field, uh, field school as far as I can. That's interesting. So what you're saying, would this apply to graduate students as well? Yes. Yeah, everybody under a PhD. Once you got a PhD, oh, that's, you're in a different category, according to them. But, but this is not just an Egyptian issue. I mean, this, I think this is true in many, many countries in the world where you, it's sort of a stratified situation where um, mm -hmm. I guess it's more, more stratified in Egypt than it is in other places. But even the Germans have a highly stratified structure for, for archaeological training. Oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's something that I, I, I think you might agree with me. It's not as common here in the United States. No. where uh, students are accepted and encouraged and promoted right. uh, to develop their skill sets and, mm -hmm. and, and to develop as they go along. I think that's very interesting, which leads me to another question. What is the nature of your international, with, of your cooperation with the Egyptians in terms of jointly undertaking projects, or does that not happen? Mm. Oh, no, that does happen. And I must say that I have... Uh, uh, I, I haven't kept up with that myself. Um, what does happen from time to time is the uh, Egyptian Department of Antiquities will come to me and say, we have a number of um, uh, young and budding inspectors, and we would like you to take them on your dig and give them training. That's happening more and more. And I do that, of course. There's no skin off my nose, and, and they don't eat with us, so it doesn't cost me anything. <laughs> but um, what, happens, what happens at the Egyptian universities? Do they have their, I mean, they have training programs, or do they get involved in foreign digs or foreign excavations or your excavations? Yes, more and more they are. That's true. And we have collaborated with Mansoura University to a very limited extent, um, and some students have come to us from Cairo and uh, where else? Zagazig, I believe. Um, but uh, they're not in any substantial numbers as yet. 
Um, that's not my fault. I'm just waiting for my Egyptian colleagues to approach me, actually. But that and could be done, and the, other, uh, other of my yeah, colleagues are doing it. Are the Egyptians undertaking their own excavations? Oh, yes. They're everywhere. And um, uh, usually working, well, they, they work through in uh, two different ways. First, the uh, universities themselves will have digs. Um, uh, but also the Department of Antiquities um, is almost obliged to uh, undertake excavation at various uh, places um, uh, throughout the entire country. Um, and um, uh, these are not, uh, tradi traditionally at least, the, 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 this kind of excavation has not been well done. And the, um, the reports that have come out, um, uh, largely in Arabic, um, are very skimpy. Um, I tried at one time to encourage inspectors to um, hand me their reports, and I would go over them and I have them translated into English, and then we'd try to publish them. And I uh, was going to set up a journal. Well, in fact, we, we are in process of doing so. Um, that would uh, be an organ for some of these uh, uh, inspectors, and they could get their own reports out. Um, now, there are problems there, too, because of the pecking order in the Department of Antiquities. <laughs> of course, the, yeah. Uh, Zahi Hawass, when he was around, he wouldn't permit this at all. Um, anything that got published was only under his name. <laughs> so, uh, my good old an Zahi. I an issue there as well, I assume. Yes. <laughs> but, um, anyways, uh, there is a lot of material um, that is uh, being... Um, brought to light by these inspectors uh, without proper publication at all. And that's why I find it uh, very useful to go throughout the Delta when I have a moment and um, go to some of the storerooms um, in various uh, towns where antiquities are kept. Um, and there is one right at Mendes, in fact, a very large storeroom, which they call a museum, but it really isn't. Um, and this has become a repository for all sorts of antiquities found all over the eastern part of the Delta, including off the Mediterranean coast. And there's some fascinating stuff there, but it'll never be published. And right. um, that could be another project, too, um, in cooperation with the Department of Antiquities publishing uh, this material. We're going to have to take another break, and okay. we will be back with Dr. Redford after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Thank you. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. I'm back with my, my very special guest, Dr. Donald Redford, a professor of Egyptology in the Departments of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies and History at Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Redford is a well-known scholar who has worked in Egypt and the greater Middle East for over half a century. Uh, Dr. Redford is now engaged in a very, very intricate project at the site of ancient Mendes in Lower Egypt. Uh, which is in the Nile Delta. Uh, Dr. Redford, tell us a little bit what you're finding um, at at Mendes and how that excavation proceeds and how you came upon this project to begin with. I think it was 1988. That's right. Um, The Egyptian Department of Antiquities was um, interested in getting excavators to excavate in the Delta because at the time they felt that uh, many sites were uh, under threat from local farmers. Um, Whether that's true or not, a a number of us went into the Delta, and um, I remember going in the summer of 1988 with my wife and young son, and um, we had a shopping list of sites. But as soon as we got to Mendes, we realized this was the one. Um, As I described before, it is uh, unencumbered by modern uh, habitations. It's completely available, all of it, for excavation. And um, it is largely intact, um, uh, three, uh, well, uh, approaching three miles long, two and a half actually, north-south, and uh, a kilometer uh, on average uh, in width. Um, we discovered that the uh, water table in the delta, of course, that, that this is always a hazard for archaeology in the delta. The water table often is very high, and uh, it prevents um, excavation unless you have a very elaborate pumping system, which was right. beyond our means. You yes. would have to use sump pumps because of the water table, and you you couldn't get a hold of those. You don't. They don't normally use sump pumps in uh, in Egypt. Oh yes, we we could have done that. Yes, uh, that that's true. But um, um, I, I had no need to do this because, as we discovered in our first excavation, um, the water table uh, at this site is very low. Ah. Um, the um, sandy uh, turtleback on which the site was founded in 5000 BC or something <laughs> um, uh, is above the water table. So even the earliest levels are dry. And this was just marvelous. Um, we've discovered now, we've, we've gone down in one area where um, uh, five meters of stratification covers one whole millennium. The uh, period from 3,000 to 2,000, the pyramid age, is uh, represented by these five meters of of deposition. Um, That's fantastic. It really is. I don't know any other site that has given us this much material on the age of the pyramids, uh, domestic material. Um, And beneath the the, the floors of the houses of 3100 B.C., we still have five meters of human occupation, prehistoric. And this, uh, we're just waiting to tap into this. Uh, um, some future season I will do so. But um, at any rate, uh, it's there and waiting uh, for excavation. Um, at the same time, we have one huge area of the site 
that was abandoned around 2500 BC, right when the the Great Pyramid was uh, under construction. Uh, Not that there's a connection, but um, we have then this uh, huge area of the city of that day, just below surface. Again, uh, this is unique as far as uh, I know, uh, to be able to get at an old kingdom city uh, to answer questions of uh, town planning, um, distribution of economy, and and, uh, the house layout. Um, These questions have never been addressed uh, before in in such a way as this, with an an entire sector of a city available for excavation just beneath the surface. So we're very excited by the prospects that this site um, is giving us. Um, moreover, uh, we stand a good chance of um, recovering uh, a large number of ceilings, clay ceilings or bulli, uh, which were attached to rolled up papyrus letters. Um, these ceilings uh, come from the very earliest period, around 3100 BC, the time of Narmer and Hor Acha, some of the earliest kings of Egypt. And um, the, uh, my, pro- my hope is that uh, we will have a chance to see the script developing. Um, we've already got a good amount of information on the invention of the hieroglyphic script from Abydos in Upper Egypt. But here in Lower Egypt, um, we, we now have the prospect of, of, of a fairly rich harvest. So again, that, that interests me very greatly. Um, in general, the site offers... Um, um, well, we have three harbors, riverine harbors, uh, which were um, fairly close to the Mediterranean coast. And we now know that uh, Mendes, uh, certainly from 700 B.C. on, was um, an emporium um, with uh, commercial contacts with uh, Phoenicia, with Syria, Cyprus, and, and later with Greece and Rome. So... Um, the, the whole site, from whatever standpoint, it, it has something for the researcher. And, um, uh, well, for, for, here's another uh, thing that we, we, uh, we had no idea we were going to bump into, and that is that uh, everybody knew around 2200 B.C. there had been a collapse, political and economic collapse of the state in Egypt. Right. Now uh, we have a very dramatic burning of the central temple, just about that time, we have carbon-14 dates that are 4200 BP or 2200 BC, and right. uh, that, that dates this burning. But as the temple was burning and collapsed, it collapsed over 35 corpses, bodies of people who had been murdered. And these had been left strewn around just outside the temple. And now the, the great tower of the temple came and was, crashed over them. Nobody came back to give them proper burial. Uh, it, it was a very grisly scene when we saw all these skeletons, some uh, toppled on top of one another. Um, I don't know what it says uh, to us, but um, it, it, it's, uh, it was very, very dramatic, in fact. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, evidence of uh, the destruction of the city much later when the Persians uh, reconquered Egypt in uh, 342 B.C., just shortly before Alexander the Great liberated the country from Persia. Um, uh, this, too, is a very exciting um, discovery. Um, and then we have the Roman period, which is well represented by pottery and, and burials. In fact, some burials... Um, although the, the garments have disintegrated, uh, had Roman eagles in gold on them. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a, a fantastic sight. I, I really am, um, I can't wait to get back, in fact. 
It sounds like a monumental undertaking because in addition to uh, what are obviously the temples and surrounding structures, you're probably going into the configurations of architecture in the secondary areas. And if you're looking at, what was it, five meters of stratified, uh, stratified deposits? And you're in not the prehistoric. In the, in the prehistoric, yeah. so you're going into pre-dynastic and possibly Neolithic, and uh, is exactly. that possible to have it there? Oh, the, yeah, th- this is so exciting. I, uh, we've dragged our feet a little bit on going into the prehistoric. I, I, I do want to do some of these other um, soundings uh, uh, in advance of that. Um, but in two or three years, it will be there, I'm sure. And how are you getting down to the deeper layers? Um, under the floor levels of the first dynasty. But uh, I mean, we, are you op- is it open wide excavation? Or are you doing coring or machine excavation well, we, or anything we like did coring, that? Yes, uh, the coring has revealed the the depth of the stratification. But yeah. um, we have excavated uh, well several units. Uh, they total oh gosh how much? Uh, eight, mm, maybe ten by ten um, when the box are knocked down. Um, so uh, that brings us down to the uh, to the first dynasty um, level, the early first dynasty, and it's beneath that that we get into the um, the pre pre dynastic. Well, this this seems like a very complex excavation. So, how is it staffed, and is it run when you're not there? And do you have any uh, locals and uh, Egyptian researchers involved in this project? Yes, um, it's it's run and funded by Penn State. Um, and um, I um, well, I'm not obliged to take uh, Penn State people, but I do, um, both students and uh, some colleagues. Um, but uh, it's open to anyone. And, and uh, this coming summer, we will have people from from uh, Berkeley and from Yale and uh, uh, from several other places as well um, uh, who are, are going to participate with us. Um, the size of the team varies depending on how much money I've got. <laughs> And uh, this year it'll be a fairly small team, only about 13 or 14. Uh, we do col- uh, collaborate with the Egyptians, and um, I will accept um, uh, Egyptian students, and I do. Um, also, there are certain technicians that um, uh, I've befriended over there. Uh, one excellent pottery artist uh, who will be my ceramicist, I hope, this coming season. Um, and then the the um, people in the uh, um, one of the departments I've forgotten which department in Mansoura University um, uh, does um, remote sensing for us. Um, my colleague who did all the coring unfortunately passed away, and uh, so I'm, uh, that leaves a great hole in my team. But uh, oh, we'll manage. Um. And so you continue to proceed with this excavation. Is it is it uh, being excavated right now? Oh no! Uh, uh, only when I'm uh, and my wife. My wife is my co-director. When we're over there, uh, usually May and June, and uh, this year it'll be uh, May, mid-May to r- the coming of Ramadan, which is uh, July 9th, right. I think. Yeah. Which is not a good time to be working out there. Um, no, although they they will work. <laughs> The laborers wonder why we uh, we take off when Ramadan comes, but um, uh, yeah, one, uh, uh, one gets perhaps a little less uh, labor out of certain people. Yeah, there's no question because the uh, the schedules are so different. Yeah. Um, 
We're going to come back with uh, Dr. Redford after these words for our last segment. Thank you. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Listen for MD Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel. That's Muscular Development Radio. Every Monday, your host, Sean Ray, will take you inside the world of bodybuilding and health and fitness. The show will feature Hall of Fame bodybuilders, trainers, judges, and the future champions of tomorrow. Plus, you'll be invited to participate in our call-in Ask the Pros feature. And our nutritional spotlight will feature products that can help you achieve your fitness goals. MD Radio is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover. And have they got stories to tell? Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with uh, the very distinguished professor, Dr. Donald Redford, an Egyptologist in the Departments of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies and History at Penn State University. Uh, Dr. Redford is, in addition to having undertaken extensive work in Egypt, he is looking at the connection between Egypt and the biblical lands. And Dr. Redford, I would like to explore that topic with you in, in this final segment. Tell us a little bit of what, what we know about the traditional biblical stories and the migration, presumably, of the Israelites from, uh, from, from Egypt back into the Holy Lands in Canaan and and Israel uh, through the Sinai Peninsula. What can you tell us a little about that and what new discoveries and new findings are there in this particular area? Well, here we enter an area of great controversy, which is um, uh, sometimes uh, creating um, sworn enemies for life. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, Unfortunately, well, I won't say unfortunately, but um, I'm not currently doing any archaeological work which would uh, cast light on the Exodus um, or any part of uh, the, the related stories in, in Genesis and Exodus. Um, we did excavate a border fortress um, 
which my colleague Eliezer Oren of uh, Beersheba uh, excavated many, many years ago. We went back to that site um, in the late 90s and uh, excavated um, some of the towers of this gigantic fort, which he has identified with the biblical Migdol, where Jeremiah fled um, after the fall of Jerusalem. So um, uh, I, I do have some connections then um, with uh, the border area, which is a fascinating area to, to do archaeology in. Um, yeah. So at, at any rate, um, that's on hold right now. But um, my, my interest in um, the connections between uh, Egypt and Israel and, and other surrounding countries um, uh, was stimulated by the fact that uh, I first started off, um, uh, my first language uh, when I got into university was Hebrew. And um, I taught Hebrew after when I was a graduate student for about four years. And uh, one of the, uh, the stories that we had to read, or that I chose to read with the kids, uh, was the Joseph story. Genesis 37 to 50, and that is really one of the finest pieces of literature in the Bible. I think it's the best. It's my favorite. It's so marvelously written. Um, but um, uh, as time went by, uh, during this four-year span, and I read it over and over, um, the, uh, my interest began to uh, focus upon the Egyptian character of the story. Or was there an Egyptian character? Right. Um, and uh, the, the questions that have to be put by any historian uh, who wants to use a piece of literature as evidence for something is, who wrote this stuff? What did he know about his topic? Where did he get his information? And for whom was he writing? And once you start to ask those questions, then the whole business of anachronisms pops up. And I found that in looking at the uh, Egyptian detail, the background of the Joseph story, there was a consistent uh, uh, scene being painted for me. Uh, in terms of date, it was always the 6th, 5th century B.C., not a thousand years earlier, as biblical chronology would have it. Right. Um, and doing the same with uh, the Exodus uh, story, uh, Exodus 1 to 15, which is a much poorer story. It's, 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 um, it does not hang together very well. It's inconsistent and whatnot. In the marked contrast to the Joseph tale, um, the same thing seems to be true of the Moses account, where um, there are certain details that um, do not seem to fit a traditional Bronze Age um, date for the uh, uh, for the origins of any of, the, uh, of these details. So um, uh, I, th that is my focus right now. I'm very interested on um, the uh, background of, of this uh, material, these 30-odd chapters as they turn out to be, um, uh, who wrote them, at what time were they written. Uh, and I, th I personally think that the, the picture is becoming clearer um, the date of writing is later, much rather than earlier, uh, and perhaps um, much later than, than many scholars will admit. Um, at any rate, that's my, my focus uh, at the present time. I, I think one of the interesting things that you bring up is we, uh, most of our knowledge on that period is really based on the material coming from, uh, for lack of a better term, let's, uh, that also is strewn with controversy, essentially from the biblical Israel side of things. And the obviously this was a two-way street for a very many years, and we don't have as much information coming out 
of the Egyptian hieroglyphic situation. What uh, are what are you seeing any primary contradictions between the bibli- traditional biblical story that we use from the classic sources and what we know from the hieroglyphics and, and from the uh, even archaeological data coming out of Egypt? Well. Um one thing that that has struck me from the beginning, and, and um, it still strikes me, uh, as something that we've got to take into account, and that is uh, why there should be uh, no references to uh, the Hebrews or Israel or the kingdom of Judah and Israel. I, now, they did exist. There's no question about that. And we now have, of course, the reference to David himself. So there's no doubt. Right that we're dealing with historical figures, but uh, in many of these figures, uh, David, for example, um, and the books of 1 Samuel, um, marvelous stories that, uh, oh, they, they're just terrific things. Um, but are we dealing with something similar to King Arthur, where we have an, um, an Arthurian figure who really did exist? He occurs in the Chronicle of Gildas, the 5th century um, after Christ. Um, but what, what we're told about uh, Arthur uh, by all those medieval troubadours is totally bogus. It's, uh, right. It reflects the age of chivalry in the 13th and 14th centuries. Um, is it the same with David? Um, I can believe there really was a, a, a brigand, if that's what he was. I guess he started off that way, called David, who later became king. But are the, the stories uh, similar to the uh, embellished stories that we get uh, surrounding King Arthur? I don't know, but that, that, that might be a model of sorts. Um, but, they, but isn't that true to the, the present thinking that even in the Bible that, yes, there was a person like this or possibly even amalgam of people like this, and because of the times, the legend of the person was either, either grew and eventually became embellished and eventually became what it is in the Bible. And, in fact, you have to really peel back the labors, the, the, uh, the layers, and, and find out really that it was a product of the time and the and the mythologies that developed subsequently. I think that a lot of people are thinking that. Is oh, that yeah, what you're no, thinking uh, as well? Uh, uh, um, perhaps the more liberal ones are. <laughs> there are yeah. uh, quite a few conservatives who would disagree with that. And a very close colleague of mine, uh, um, his ears must be burning right now. But Oh, um, my God. Okay. <laughs> no, never mind. We get along famously. <laughs> We're good drinking buddies. But... Uh, um, yeah, no, but I, I assume you're disposed to the more liberal interpretation. Oh, good God, yes. <laughs> okay, that's all I'm going. With yeah. here. <laughs> the, um, if I could say what I think the the, the general lie of the land looks like, um, and the way the evidence is pointing. Um, we have, of course, this one reference to Israel in the land of about 1220 BC. Um, it's an ethnic group, I think, rather than a state. Um, at, and it could be placed in the central hill country uh, to the north of Jerusalem, um, just where um, uh, so much of the bibl- biblical material focuses. Um, but that's the only reference. On the other hand, we now have this, um, uh, this reference to a nomadic tribe called the Shasu Yahu, um, dating from the 14th century BC, and uh, possibly uh, in a, uh, an inscription which is a copy of an even earlier one. Um, that brings us to the, the whole um, problem of the Shasu. That's a name meaning nomad or transhuman, an Egyptian word. Um, and the Egyptians knew these transhumans by their tribal affiliation. And mm-hmm. one of these tribes was called the Shasu Yahu. Um, 
it seems to have been originally located along with a number of other uh, transhuman tribes in what would later be Moab and Edom on the uh, eastern side of the uh, Dead Sea and the Arba. Right. Um, now, in the reign of Seti I, or just very shortly before, there was an eruption of these Shasu uh, from this area across the Negev, um, intent apparently on cutting the coastal route, the, um, uh, the, the um, way of the sea, uh, at about the, uh, the cities of Ashkelon or Gaza. Um, they, it can be argued that this movement eventually was deflected and found a haven in the central hill country. Um, and a number of scholars um, are now uh, toying with the idea that this is the origin of the Bnei Yisrael. They were members of this Shasu movement and came to rest in the hill country later to be identified by Miram Tach, maybe a hundred years later, uh, as the um, as Israel. Uh, under those conditions, the Bnei Israel would not have taken part at all in uh, any exodus from Egypt, and that leaves the exodus hanging high and dry. What is it? Where where does this idea come from of a great coming out? Um, it's not only in the Bible that the tradition is painted, it's also painted in um, Hellenistic um, uh, Judaism in Alexandria. Right. Many stories of Moses and, and whatnot there. And how, why, why should we discount any of them we sh uh, as being simply dependent on the biblical account? Um, I'm, I'm not trying to answer that question, but I mean, these are questions that ought to be put. And then there is another reflection of a great coming out in Phoenicia. Um, which is known to us only in, in the Greek sources, but uh, it probably goes back to Sanconiaton, who was a wise man of the 6th century B.C., uh, who seems to have written some kind of history of his people. And that, meant, that uh, also refers to um, the legend of Eo, uh, who was um, stung by a gadfly, turned into a heifer, and she ended up on the banks of the Nile. Uh, and her son was Epaphos, which is a Hyksos king, Apophis, and Belos, Baal, and um, and then after four generations, and I refer you to what Yahweh said to uh, to Abraham in what was it Genesis 15, I believe. Your descendants will go into a land which is not there, and they will stay there for four generations, and then they will come out again. And there it is. And there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I I'm tending to think that the Hyksos is what we ought to be looking at. You're not the only person who thinks that at this point. Um, yeah. We're going to have to wrap up at this stage. Uh, okay. Dr. Redford, it's been my pleasure to uh, interview you and to speak with you on these wonderful topics. And hopefully we will be able to speak with you again at a later occasion on okay. uh, this phenomenal uh, development, these phenomenal developments in ancient Egypt and as well as in Israel, as we're discovering right now. Until yeah. next time, this is uh, Joe Shulden Ryan saying good evening to you, and we'll see you again shortly. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Shulden Ryan. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.